This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode, we have questions from Susanna, Caleb, Joanna, Benton, and Noah. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions. Then we'll look at this episode's big question. And as always, we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's get serious and tackle a couple of serious questions from Susanna and from Caleb. First, Susanna asks, If God is everywhere, is he in all our body parts? Well, Susanna, the fancy theological term for God being everywhere is omnipresent. Omni means everywhere, and present means, well, uh, present. The idea here is that there's nowhere that God isn't. So if your body parts are somewhere and God is everywhere, then it stands to reason that God is there. But there's something important for us to remember. God is everywhere but he isn't contained anywhere. Let me give you a hypothetical example. If I were to trick my little brother into going inside a closet and then I shut the door on him and lock it, we would say he is in the closet. He is contained in the closet. He's in there and he can't get out. But that's not the way that God is anywhere. If someone says, I have Jesus in my heart, They don't mean that he's inside the heart and can't get out. In fact, one of the points of a doctrine like God's omnipresence is to insist that God cannot be contained or limited in any way. He is everywhere, so nothing is hidden from him, and no place is off limits to him. So whenever you think about God being everywhere, just remind yourself, God is everywhere, but he is not contained or limited anywhere. For our next question, we turn to Caleb. He wants to know, what do the letters on the wooden thing behind the pulpit mean? Well, Caleb, the wooden thing behind the pulpit is called an altarpiece. We inherited it from an old Lutheran church. Now, Martin Luther started the Reformation, and we are a Reformation church, So you might think of this as a way of remembering where we came from. But in Reformed churches like ours, we don't gather around an altar. Jesus died once and for all at the cross, so we no longer make sacrifices for sin, either uh, literally or symbolically. So when we have communion, we come to the table, not the altar. So on our altarpiece, there are two sets of letters, and I'll explain each set. First, uh, there are Greek letters, Alpha and Omega. Now, at the beginning of the book of Revelation, Jesus refers to himself as the Alpha and the Omega, which means the beginning and the end, because Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. So Jesus is saying here that he is the one through whom all things were made in the beginning, and he will make all things new at the end. He is the beginning. He is the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Kind of like if we were to say something like, he is the A and the Z. Like he is there at the beginning, all throughout, and at the very end. 
So that's the meaning of that first set of letters. There's a second set of letters, and at first glance, they appear to be English. It's the letters I, H, and S. Now, some people will tell you that they stand for in his service. That's not actually correct. In fact, these letters are not in English. They're in Latin. They just happen to be the same letters in both English and Latin. They stand for the Latin phrase in hoc signo, which means by this sign. Now, you may remember the story. The first Christian emperor of Rome, Constantine, supposedly had a vision in which he saw the Greek letters chi and rho, which are the two first letters in the name Christ. And he was told, by this sign, you shall conquer. And so in the battle the next day, he had them paint the chi and the rho together on their shields. And he did, in fact, win the battle. Well, people debate whether or not that actually happened. But these letters are a reminder to us that our victory is in Christ alone. Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this episode is asked by Joanna. Now this is going to be a tough one because it involves so many different aspects. It's a simple question with a big answer. Joanna asks, what is discipleship? Which is a great question because discipleship is one of those words we use all the time, but often we never go back and define what we actually mean. So let's do that. According to the Great Commission, at the end of Matthew 28, when Jesus is giving his final instructions in Matthew to the church, it turns out that the whole mission of the church is to make disciples. So the simplest definition of discipleship is the act of being a disciple. In other words, uh, everything that helps us follow in the steps of Jesus is part of discipleship. Now, when you think about that, that's pretty broad. So let me try to focus on some of the essentials. So a disciple is someone who practices faith in Jesus Christ. Notice that I didn't say just a person who has faith, but a person who practices faith. Sometimes we talk about faith as if it's simply believing in an idea. You'll hear people say things like, uh, I'm a Christian because I believe in Christianity, even though I don't go to church or read the Bible or pray or anything like that. They think that Christianity is the equivalent of a philosophy and that by agreeing to the ideas That's the main thing, whether you put them into practice or not. But Jesus doesn't tell us to make believers. He tells us to make disciples. So real faith is lived out in practice. Following Jesus, in other words, involves doing, not just believing. It involves action. The most important action that a disciple does is worship. Human beings were made by God to worship God. And the only reason that we don't do this is because of our own sin. So, when God makes peace with us through his grace, he calls us to worship him. 
So disciples come together every Lord's Day, every Sunday, and we worship together. And that is the most important thing we do as disciples, because it is the thing we will continue to do in the new creation. We will continue to worship. Now, disciples also apply themselves to these things that the Westminster Confession calls the means of grace. So let me give you some examples. Uh, Hearing the word preached, hearing sermons preached, receiving the sacraments, so being baptized and then receiving the Lord's Supper week after week, and also prayer, the time that we spend meditating on God's word and praying to him. These are all means of grace. Like Jesus preached the word, he instituted the sacraments, and he lived a life of prayer. So these are key ways for us to follow in his footsteps. And as we do this, he works in us through the Spirit to make us better and better disciples. So disciples also strive to love God and to love one another. Again, this involves living after the example of Jesus rather than just pleasing ourselves. We don't answer evil with evil. We overcome evil through good. Now, this is important because sometimes Christians think it's enough, again, to just believe in Christianity and then to pursue Christianity however they want. But actually, God has called us not just to believe the right things, but also to do the right things, to believe in the gospel, but also to promote the gospel and to do it the right way, to do it in righteousness. And so it's not just what we believe, but what we do that matters in the life of discipleship. If you think about it, in the word discipleship, there's another word that's kind of buried in there, kind of hidden. And if you remember this hidden word, it really helps understand what discipleship is all about. And that word is discipline. In Proverbs 25, 28, it says that a person without self-discipline is like a city broken into and left without walls, a city that's now defenseless. In other words, without discipline, you can't control what enters your life or what goes out from your life. You can't control the influences that shape you or the actions that you perform. So the discipline of weekly worship and regular attendance on the means of grace helps to form you to have the mind of Christ so you can follow Jesus and not be conformed to this world. The discipline of meditating on Scripture And spending time with God in prayer helps you put your belief into practice so that you can genuinely love your neighbor the way God commands you to do. Obviously, there's much more to discipleship. Whole books have been written about discipleship. But now, at least, you have a foundation for thinking about this big concept. Just think of it this way. Your mission is to follow Jesus with discipline, with a faith that produces good actions in your life. And the mission of the church is to help form you into a disciple. Now it's time to have some fun with a couple of fun questions from Benton and Noah. First, Benton asks, If there was a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup ice cream cake, would you get it? If you remember, in past episodes of The Big Question, we've had a number of questions about my favorite desserts, and I've expressed some partiality to peanut butter cups and also to ice cream cake. And so Benton has asked maybe about the ultimate possible dessert, the combination of these two wonderful things. If such a dessert were to exist, would I 
be willing to eat it. Well, Benton, the good news is it already pretty much exists. We don't actually have to invent this, although it's not a cake exactly. If you go to Dairy Queen, you can order a blizzard with Reese's peanut butter cups in it. So you get a cup of vanilla soft serve ice cream and it has these big chunks of Reese's built in. That is basically a peanut butter cup ice cream cake, I'm going to argue. And if the question is, would I get it? The answer is absolutely. In fact, I've gotten it way too many times already. Well, that was fun, but we're not done. Now we have a crazy question from Noah. Noah asks, why are you the coolest pastor ever? Well, Noah, I'm not actually sure that I am the coolest pastor ever. There was a pastor in the Reformation, John Knox, who, when he was preaching, could lean out of the pulpit at basically a 90-degree angle. Uh, There's actually a painting of him doing this, kind of hanging out of the pulpit over the people. If I tried to replicate this, I'm pretty sure I'd just fall right over. But uh, I appreciate the kind words. I'm always conscious of my limitations, so it's nice to think that I'm doing all right. Of course, the important thing for a pastor is actually not to be cool, but to be faithful. In fact, I think it's a mistake to try too hard to be cool. You know those adults who are always trying to convince you that they're still young at heart, that they're on top of all the trends and love, whatever music the kids are listening to. Pastors shouldn't worry too much about things like that. Instead, I want young people at Grace to know that my goal isn't to convince you that I'm just like you. My goal is to convince you to want to be more like Jesus. Now, I may know all the best desserts and have the best taste in dinosaurs and be able to tie a bow tie without help from anyone else. And I may be able to tell jokes so funny that people are so stunned that they can't even laugh. But I am what I am by the grace of God, and I want you to experience that grace too. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will always stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions.